Welcome to the Urbanista, where we discuss the water management challenges of Nordic cities. From safe drinking water distribution and stormwater collection to building sustainable urban living environments. Here is your host, Delphine Vesalo. Hey, welcome back, Urbanistas. Now we start season two of the Urbanista, the podcast where we talk about water management in cities and all the challenges that sustainability is bringing to the municipalities and the water utilities. In this season two, we'll be talking about many, many more interesting topics like the distribution of potable water. We are going to elaborate even more about the stormwater management and of course, sustainability. Legislation is evolving at the European level in the European Union. More things are coming every day in every single country in the Nordics. Requirements are getting tougher in terms of compliance with sustainability and carbon footprint reductions. All those things we will have here for you to discuss. Starting now season two, we thought about giving you a summary of all the topics that we have been talking about here at the Urbanista. We start this effort back in 2022, in September 2022, in Copenhagen, because we were at the International Water Association Congress, the World Water Congress, and we took the opportunity to talk with a lot of people there, and that's how we started this effort of communicating, of sharing the challenges, the problems that our industry is uh, facing, and why not talking with interesting people who have something interesting to say, and perhaps solutions to those challenges. So here we go. We started in our very first episode. We spoke with Hilary Ajo, our very own Hilary, uh, Vice President of Sustainability and Regulatory Affairs at Uponor. And he was part of the panel in the high-level discussion, in the high-level summit of the Water World Water Congress. And after that, after he came down from the stage, we have a very nice conversation with him about the importance of society accepting the water investment cost. We ask it, is the water too cheap in the Nordics? Are we paying too little for the water? And the, how do we move forward with this? Are we paying too few for the water? Is the water too cheap in the Nordics? Globally speaking, it's obvious that we are, we are paying too little. If we would be paying enough, then that would cover for the investments, as well, at, at least the funding needs for the investments. But probably in the current time and age, that would mean that the price of water would be socially unacceptably high, at least from the, from the most vulnerable household's point of view. Ilir explained that when we look towards achieving sustainability goals, there is the issue of keeping the cost of the investment acceptable to the stakeholders. That means you, me, the users, we all use water and we all pay the water with our taxes. And he explained that, globally speaking, the cost of water doesn't cover really the investment. Uh, this means we are behind in updating the infrastructure because well, there's, there's not enough money to reinvest on that infrastructure. So what's needed are new engineering solutions, but also we need water rates, a water rate system that realistically reflects those costs. So increasing the cost of water does not have an unfair impact in the final consumer, the ones that pay, and overall those most vulnerable sectors of our society. 
Hilary suggested that we start from the social angle. It is a very complex uh, problem, so engaging with the community, but also designing solutions that maintain the investment that we put into the water system at a reasonable cost. That's the only way, in his view, that we can get the acceptance needed to reach the sustainability goals. But he warned that it won't be simple. The solution will deserve, actually, a Nobel Prize. While we were at the World Water Congress, we also had the chance to chat with a couple of cool guys, Uponor stormwater experts, Rika Granat and Joan Sarinen, and both working in stormwater solutions. This discussion, this five chat discussion that we had, was about the new challenges that extreme weather events are causing. Ricard and Jean explaining how old infrastructure can be a problem, but also new solutions may also be necessary to prevent stormwater affecting the quality of our lakes, ponds, seas, and rivers, uh, like rain gardens, stormwater chambers, and other solutions that will help clean heavy metals, phosphorus, and other sediments from the water. So, yeah, in the end, our recipients, our water recipients, keep the quality of those. We also discussed the sustainability of a stormwater system, and we learned how different materials, like fossil-free plastics, can help to reduce the carbon footprint of the whole project. And we discovered possible ways to reuse the water. For example, when watering green areas, we collect stormwater, and then we reuse that water for those purposes. In conclusion, we agreed that these are big questions to resolve, but it can be resolved with simple solutions. It's just a matter of breaking down in small challenges, in small projects, so working together with the industry and society, we can find a way forward. Sustainability, okay, what do we understand by making a stormwater solution sustainable? The function itself of the stormwater solution is, I guess, working in a sustainable way because we are treating the pollution and we are handling also issues like flooding and so on. But, but also the material we are using to build the, the facilities is uh, possible to do something with. And actually, when you do, uh, let's say, calculation of environmental impact on, in an insta installation, the materials are quite mm -hmm. heavy in that calculation. Mm -hmm. So we can, for example, uh, use plastics which are produced from fossil free raw material, mm -hmm. which will lower the carbon footprint with uh, up to 70% for the material used in the project. 70%, yeah. 70 yeah. carbon footprint reduction. Yeah. In episode 4 of the Urbanista, we were still at the World Water Congress, and we spoke with Lars Nörgar Holmegar, the CEO of the water utility of Lebbig in Denmark. He explained all the problems that Denmark is facing with the rising water levels. And uh, over the last 25 years, the groundwater has risen more than one meter, and there has been 25% more rain over the last 40 years. So they have a huge problem because of the climate change. So back in 2015, Lars started Climatorium, a non-profit organization with the goal of finding real solutions for climate problems. There, they find the problems and connect with, know with new knowledge from universities, and they are finding companies to complete or complement those solutions. Lars gave the example of the unused plastic fishing nets in the seas, taking them up and burning them that will release, will release masses of CO2. So Climatorium 
found some Danish companies that know how to separate that type of plastics and nets and then they can be repurposed. Lars' message was always focused on the future. Start speaking with each other, he said, and speak with the children. Yes, with the children. If you can help a child to understand the issue, it will be easier to communicate with other adults. Because I have heard a story about some fishing nets yeah. that were recycled. I mean, of course, the fishing nets that we use, well, to fish and to get our food, but then after a while, those get, well, break, broken. They are no more uh, usable for, for the purpose of fishing. And one, uh, yeah, uh, one of the things uh, that is, uh, we have so much fishing nets in the seas uh, around us. And um, if we took all uh, this fishing net up and burnt them, it will be the same as uh, burn all the, the forest in all the world. So much CO2 will there be so in this uh, fishing normally net. normally is done. Yeah. They pull out the nets and they yeah. burn them. Yeah, uh, well, actually, oh. the fishing net is staying uh, in the sea. But that's even worse. Uh, okay, but that's, uh, but worse. Uh, that's one problem. But uh, can we take this fishing net up? We could burn it and uh, use it for energy. But uh, it will give us uh, another problem called CO2 uh, oh, emissions. Sure. Yes. And, uh, but could we reuse it? It can be a way to do it. So uh, uh, we have found out how to do it. Mm -hmm. Taking up this fishing net, and uh, reuse the plastic. There can be up to 36 types of plastic. On episode five of, of The Urbanista, we have a chat with Clara Ram, executive committee member of EURO, the European Federation of National Associations of Water Services. She described the EURO as a unique group of experts trying to explain how the sector works and how the European Union law works. The challenge she has been facing is to make the water network more efficient. She explained that the first important step is learn about your network. Another thing is to check that the water metering in the network is working and is fit for purpose. And then you have to take care of your network, the pipes, the materials you use, and the age of the pipes. There are a lot of things, there are a lot of small factors to consider. Her message was that we have to invest more in circular economy sustainable and durable materials. In that way, uh, this is very important to reuse. For example, how can we reduce old pipes to replace broken ones? What about the end consumer? Because if we increase the price of this and the, the production and the operation, and well, at the end, somebody has to pay for it. Are we paying too few? for the water we consume? Are we paying enough? Yes, I think that people are not aware. So, so really people, I'm not sure if they are really look deeply into their water bills. Maybe when price rises, they are interested why it happens, but they should be aware what they are paying for. And in this new drinking water directive, I already mentioned it, mm -hmm. there is uh, also a requirement to inform society to inform mm -hmm. uh, customers and public mm -hmm. what is into this bill how it's calculated mm -hmm. and also how to make it smaller so how to behave how the customer should behave to use less water on episode six of the urbanista we had the privilege of talking with gregory norris greg norris professor of the mit and harvard university and he is the director of shine the Sustainability and Health Initiative for Net Positive Enterprise at MIT themselves. Uh, he is teacher of Life Cycle Assessment at Harvard University and currently is Director of Science at the Earthster 
startup. And Gregory explained to us how the life cycle assessment uh, is about looking at all the issues that are important environmentally and look at them in relation to the products. It's been applied to life cycles, households, regions, companies, and more. Life cycle refers to the cycle of a product from cradle to grave. And cradle means you consider not only the creation of the product, but also the inputs used in the product and the inputs to used to create those inputs. Regarding the modeling databases, Greg was explaining that there is so much data that sometimes it's hard to consolidate into one database available and uh, that is yeah, available around the world. And that was actually the birth of the EcoInvent database, the largest and most transparent LCAs database in the world. We asked the best way for a company to reduce their carbon footprint, and Greg gave two answers. The first is electricity from renewable sources. The second, make the effort to obtain either a prior life cycle assessment about your organization or perform your own life cycle assessment because you may discover that the electricity you purchase is just 1% of the footprint. Up to 50% of the footprint is in the use phase of that product. So Greg, what exactly is life cycle assessment? Life cycle assessment was created in 1968, 1969. And the intent of this method was to try and answer a question which of different ways of making a product or using a product would be better for the environment overall. So the key words there, I think, are environment, overall, and product. That's what life cycle assessment is about. It's trying to give us an environmental assessment, not just a climate assessment, but look at all the issues, whatever those may be, that are important environmentally. Look at them comprehensively in relation usually to products. And I say usually because life cycle assessment was initially created specifically to address products. In fact, it was the question of returnable soda bottles versus single-use soda bottles. That was the first question posed that led to the creation of uh, LCA. And packaging was the topic for the first few years of LCA. But it doesn't have to be restricted to products. Life cycle assessment has been applied to lifestyles, households, regions, companies, and so forth. You can do an organizational life cycle assessment, but the original creation of LCA was definitely to give you a holistic environmental evaluation of products and to help you choose the best and make any uh, situation better, any product system better. On episode 8 of The Urbanista, we talked with Franz Kukulisa, business director of Denmark's first plastic recycling company, Oge Bastegar Larsen AS. They are the Nordic region's largest high-quality plastic recycling company where the raw material of recycled plastic can be used for products that can be reused again and again. And they have been doing this for 40 years. So way before circular economy was a thing, they were already doing it. Franz shared with us his deep understanding of the plastic recycling, having worked in the business for all these years. He told us the amazing story of the founder of the company, Age Vestegar Larsen, who found Bocht and plastic recycling machine, brought it to Denmark and started to do it by himself. Franz addressed 
the question of quality and cost. He stressed that the recycled plastic final product must also be a good fit to make plastic good enough to go back to a household. Regarding the cost, he explained that from the business point of view, we cannot allow it to be more expensive than the actual virgin material. On episode 9, we spoke with Patrick Bortovich, research manager at Savonia University of Applied Sciences and water network modeling expert in the field of environmental engineering. He told us about the role of the Cuopio water cluster, which combined together the power of more than 150 experts to make sure that the ideas that are starting in academia well, can be converted into real products. He told us how their lab has, water, has a water loop, which is a scaled-down version of a real water network. And in a very compact time frame, they can recreate any kind of scenario that could happen in a real network, including even a cross-contamination. We asked how receptive the water companies have been to the developments that they have uh, been doing. And he explained that water utilities have a commitment to make savings and what wastewater treatment uses notoriously large amount of energy and companies have a water footprint that they want to reduce. Digitalization allows the bill to be reduced, so they won't need so much manpower in the future and it also keeps the costs at a reasonable level. We should not forget about the stormwater and the wastewater. It's the climate change is bringing a lot of issues or a, a lot of challenges for for us in the future. In Finland, it is forecasted that this number of this occurrence of the torrential rains, mm. when in the past it was not uh, occurring, so the infrastructure is not ready for uh, for it. So you need some kind of a real-time control approaches before you start digging out the pipes and remodeling everything to adapt. We are in this transition phase. Mm -hmm. And underground modernizations or any changes to underground infrastructure is like super costly. It's really super costly. On episode 10 of The Urbanista, we spoke with Natalia Rincon, co-founder and CEO of Chaos Architects. And it was all about data-driven urban design. Chaos is an AI company focused on location intelligence forecast to improve the livability of cities. She was explaining us more about Chaos, which is a location intelligence company which collects and geolocates data. They clean it, put it together, apply artificial intelligence data science, and they get new insights from this. She explained that a location can be a community, like a neighborhood in your city, that has a certain characteristic that is an intangible thing that mainly we think of as a qualitative, but it can also be quantitative. It might be that in a very young, progressive or liberal neighborhood, you may find a lot of internet searches for vegetarian restaurants or for certain hobbies that appeal to them. So, and this is the beauty of big data. You can quantify sentiment and feelings of the inhabitants of certain parts of the cities. So why is this important? Well, regarding a municipality, the goal is to attract taxpayers and raise their quality of life. So when making more and more general or detailed zoning plan, you need to understand a lot about the, those influencing factors. Sustainability in general is a very old topic. As an architect, we also, you know, uh, taught to be conscious about the environment. 
we have all these practices uh, that were like a nice to have, you know, like something that would provide you like a little bit like edge uh, from your competitor. But now with uh, this Paris, Paris Agreement and all these uh, carbon emissions that we have to be conscious on from last year, or I would say 2021 until now, I have seen a whole complete shift uh, in developers, real estate investors, uh, investors uh, overall, like equity investors. So it's not anymore a nice to have. Having a sustainability aspect is not a nice to have anymore. Yeah, it's not nice to have anymore. It's like a must. On episode 11 of The Urbanista, we talk with Baby Raibio, a Helsinki-based designer who has dedicated her career to creating better public spaces through urban intervention and placemaking. This conversation was all about placemaking. She told us about creating public spaces. She explained how it gathers together a wide variety of people who are somehow working with urban spaces. There may be developers, real estate owners, designers, architects, but also facilitators and people who work for municipalities. They may start with small strategic actions like placing a few chairs, watching where, movie, where people move, how they move, and from there building up a place-led development. As cities are becoming denser, we need higher quality urban spaces, and from a place-making point of view, this means opportunities for people to meet each other, have space to relax, but also to enjoy the good urban life. We asked Paivi how sustainable the materials involved in her projects are, and she was explaining that very often she uses wood in the modular projects with a view to sustainability, but wood is also a comfortable material. She added that it is also important to highlight the green or biomaterials like plants because access to greenery for children in a, is a playful thing, but it's also a health thing. It's a way to develop your relationship to nature. The quality of the environment where they spend so many hours of the day can, be, can have a big impact on how they interact in the future. It's even proven that contact with soil on a daily basis can boost children's immunity systems. Are we using too few or, or too much in general sustainable materials when we are creating new spaces in the cities? I think that in general, I guess there is this kind of life cycle assessments done and the more permanent mm -hmm. the, the solution, the more durable materials. But I think that there could be way more, for instance, wooden structures in public space and kind of wood as a material and more seen in our, our public spaces, often seen uh, like plastic flower pots and so on. And of course, we also, for the kind of inner inner planter pot, we have 100% uh, recycled plastic, which is, of course, great. But this is this keeps cycle mm -hmm. <laughs> in the cycle. But in terms of material wise, I guess we are in a good, good spot with that. What sort of materials are used in public spaces? In May, we spoke again with Rikal Granat, a stormwater solutions expert from Upanor Infra. And uh, he told us about all the challenges involved in managing the stormwater. He was explaining that there are many types of pollution that enter the stormwater. For example, car fumes that cause pollution, but also the materials that the cars are built from when the car breaks, the rubber from the tires that is uh, corroded, and the, all that goes down the drain. The same goes for buildings. Roofs are made of copper, 
and sink and then eventually corrodes and also enters the stormwater. We asked how these different elements are treated and Ricard explained that the system used to separate particles and treat the water, separate the oil and similar treatment techniques that also separate the particles are super important, especially when filtering out heavy metal ions that are in the water. One of the main points that Ricard highlighted was maintenance. Of course, filtered pollutants don't disappear. They don't just vanish into thin air. So they stay in the plant. And so the maintenance means that taking away all those pollutants that you have collected, it is really important to do that maintenance just as important as the initial design. Well, human activity, let's say, creates oh, well, yeah. pollution, unfortunately. And uh, all the buildings you have, uh, the more urban, the more commercial. You have traffic, you have, you know, building materials like uh, metals and all this activity, human activity in the cities mostly uh, creates pollution. Then when the start, uh, rain starts, it, it will wash, the, let's say, the surface of the city and take this pollution with it down to, downstream to the water bodies. So that's, that's the challenge. Our episode with Jenny Rachkonen, the environmental coordinator at the city of Lahti, was very special, as Lahti was nominated Green Capital of Europe in 2021. And she elaborated on all the circular economy uh, strategies that they have been following along the years. Lahti had just published its first sustainability report in this spring. So we asked Jenny about the challenges that she has faced in making Lahti more sustainable. She explained to us that all habits, well, were a big issue. Changing the way that we think from the current linear model where we just make, use and throw away materials and products to the circular model where materials are used again and again, that is a big challenge. And this challenge, well, comes with a change of mindset of the people and how change the normal business models is also a big problem. We also wanted to know more how Lahti had become this European green capital and Yeni told us about the long journey they have made, starting with the environmental work preserving the local lake, Vesiyarvi. She also told us how, back in 2017, they introduced the Bayarhame area of Lahti, the first regional roadmap towards circular economy. Nowadays, Lahti has the ambitious goal of becoming carbon neutral by 2025 and the really big target of becoming zero waste city by 2050. How come? How Lahti became a European green capital? Yeah, well, it, it was really quite a long process, of course, from the expertise that was has started in Lahti already in the 1970s, in the, especially in the, the environmental work that has been done in the in preserving the local lake, Besijärvi. And from there, a lot of environmental expertise and research started to focus, especially in Lahti. After that, for example, waste separate sorting started already in 1990s in Lahti. And actually, at the moment, we are already recycling or utilizing 99% of, of waste materials from households and only 0.5% is anymore going to the landfills. About half is recycled and, and less, less than half is then going to the 
energy utilization nowadays. And then one big step in the environmental work in Lahti was when we abandoned the use of coal in, in district heating in 2019. And now Lahti is heated with recycled fuel as well as the local certified wood. And then, for example, in 2017, we already in introduced the first regional roadmap for circular economy in, in Lahti uh, area in, in Päijät-Häme. And, and then we have these ambitious goal, goals for future to become carbon neutral by 2025 and uh, a really big target of becoming a zero waste city uh, in 2050. So all this uh, ambitious environmental work that, that has started already for decades, but also we are looking at the future and not, not really stopping for only this environmental uh, capital year, but developing the environmental work all the time. In one of the latest episodes of the spring, we spoke with Talwa Lutkin, Utility Performance Editor at Global Water Intelligence. It was a really nice conversation that you for sure want to hear again. She told us about the research she does at GWI how they basically have a global network of all people in the ground and in the field who have given them great information. Then they collect all these pieces in a big puzzle and turn it into a global picture of the water industry. She went on to tell us about the advantages of green infrastructure, which, she says, has a purpose or a function. That is, prevent flooding and make us more climate resilient. But it also improves the quality of life. As we all are members of the public, we may not know that this park is also functioning as a stormwater buffer. It's just a place where you can ride your bike, but it has also a sustainability function. We also asked if we are paying too little for water, and she agreed, we are, explaining it is vital, but it is costly and we don't pay enough for it. There is, of course, the question of it being a public good and this is true. You don't want water to be unaffordable because everybody needs it. We ended our conversation about how can we improve the sustainability of water and Talula stressed the importance of raising the public and the political profile of water. Yeah, so you can actually design a road um, that's, you know, that's designed in such a way that, that the water will be able to infiltrate into into the road, um, which is incredible, and it's you know it's 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 a really a way to prevent flooding. And I think you're right. You know, you say we're all going to be living in um, urban environments. I live in London. It's very urban. And another advantage of green infrastructure is really this idea of reintroducing greenery, which obviously has a purpose. It has a function. The function is to um, to prevent flooding and to and to, to make us more climate resilient. But it also it it improves the quality of life, right? I mean, you know, in, in my street we don't have a lot of trees. Maybe it'd be nicer if we had more trees, if we had more greenery, um, if I had a, a park that was closer that would maybe I don't know that it's functioning as a as a stormwater buffer, but actually for me it's just a park where I can go and you know ride my bike. But it also functions as something. So that's really that double function as well of of, of green infrastructure to, to you know to help us be climate resilient, but also improve that urban quality of life that we all kind of want um, when we live in cities. On episode 15 of The Urbanista, actually the last episode of season one, we spoke with Judith Massip, sustainability expert at Uponor, and we went through all the details about EPDs, environmental product declarations. How are they made? How do you read them? 
How do you compare them? Which things do you have to focus on when reading them based on what your project needs? What things, what numbers you should pay attention to? This is a very insightful episode that you want to check again. All about EPDs. This has been a quick summary of all the topics and interesting people that we have been interviewing during season one of The Urbanista. Now that we are kicking off season two, we'll be talking with more experts, more people who have an interesting opinion about how water management in cities can be improved, and even more, all the topics about sustainability that are now top of mind of both population and governments. Keep tuning. And thank you for tuning in, Urbanistas. Thank you for listening to the Urbanista podcast, a production of Upono Infra, the leader in sustainable infrastructure solutions. If you found it interesting, why don't you share it with your colleagues? We all together can move our industry forward.